Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, a lot has already been said, a lot has happened. Do you have about 30 minutes to devote your hearts and minds to the Word of God? You, you can say yes. I, I need to know. All right. Well, if you can put up that, that first slide there, is it? The title of the message this morning, this is a, you, you guys know if you've been coming for a while that I've been working through a, a sermon series called The Hundred Things You Should Know from the Bible. We just pretty much opened up the Bible and said, if you've been at our church for a couple years, what are some things you absolutely should have heard about from God's Word, things you should know about, especially as they relate to the, the great redemptive story of God from the, the beginning of creation all the way to the return of Christ. And so we've picked out a hundred different passages from Scripture. We've been working our way through them. This is message number 50, and it marks a turning point in that this is, and this is one of the longest sermon series in history of the church, I think. Um, This is the last message from the Old Testament. And after this message is over, starting next week or the week after next, um, we're going to be preaching through the book of Acts for the rest of this year. And then in the beginning of next year, we're going to pick up with the New Testament and work our way through 50 of those. Sound good? I hope you've been really encouraged by these. And as you know, too, um, our brother Heath has been commissioned to do an an original drawing that captures the theme of every single sermon. And they're fantastic drawings. Some of them are are just masterpieces. In fact, they're so popular, I'm emailing them on a weekly basis to a number of you because you like the drawing so much. And that's a visual sermon in itself. So I hope that you've really been getting a lot out of the sermon series. This morning's message is called Putting God's House First. Putting God's House First. And it comes from Haggai 1, verses 1 through 15. And this is a passage of scripture that, if I'm really honest about it, most preachers pull this one out when they need to raise some money for the church. Okay? It's the one that that begins every single capital campaign. We need to get a new building, and so you all need to know you got to put God's house first. You're all living in your paneled houses, and it's a big guilt trip. I think that really is a misreading of this text. I have wrestled with this text for three weeks now, and I think that I understand the real heart or the tone of what God's trying to say through this. And I don't think it's a big guilt trip. I don't think it has primarily to do with money. But I think this is God wrestling for the hearts of his people who once loved him dearly and have fallen asleep at the wheel of their faith. And so that's the spirit in which I want to preach from this text this morning. And I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background first, because when we deal with something this many years back, you might not know what's going on in the world. So I want to give you a quick history lesson. If you don't like history, just bear with me, because I think you need to understand this context. All right. So about 600 years before the the birth of Jesus Christ, in, in roughly the year 586, that's debated, but around that time, Um, God raised up a foreign nation, the the Babylonian Empire, under Nebuchadnezzar, and they came and conquered Jerusalem and defeated the nation of Judah. Now, if you know anything about the period of of history um, in Israel, they were a divided kingdom, just like during the Civil War, the United States had the north and the south. Israel had the same thing. The northern kingdom was called Israel. It consisted of ten tribes, and they had already, about 140 years earlier, been taken captive by the Assyrians and just about obliterated as a nation. And then God sends all of these prophets to the southern kingdom and said, You learned your lesson from watching your brothers to the north. Do not repeat their mistake. 
please repent of your sin or you also will be defeated by a foreign nation. They, they blew it off. They laughed at the prophets. They thought no one can harm us. We're the chosen people of God. So they went on sinning. And in the year 586 BC, the Babylonians take over. The citizens of Judah who occupy Jerusalem and the surrounding cities are taken into exile in Babylon. And, and this is a way to demoralize the people and establish that you now have a new ruler. They moved them away from their hometowns, brought them into the capital city of Babylon, and it integrated those people into Babylonian culture. And there they lived for like 70 years. Then King Cyrus decided, I'm going to let them go back and rebuild Jerusalem. I don't know if he got tired of having them in the city. I don't know if he just was really open-minded. But he, he decided to issue a decree permitting them to return. And so about 50,000 of those exiles living and working every day in Babylon decided they would take that open door and return from exile to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild it. And so in the year 536 B.C., um, they returned under the authority of one of their fellow Jews, uh, a, a governor named Zerubbabel. By the way, Zerubbabel means seed or son of Babel. So he really was probably born in captivity, was a young leader, and they followed him back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And as they got back right away, they began to work on the temple. There was rubble everywhere. I don't know if you've ever seen a store in your neighborhood that went out of business, but isn't it amazing that after it goes out of business, in like three weeks, it looks totally condemned. When you don't keep a place up, it starts to look horrible on the outside. And it was just in ruins, this place. It had already been sacked, and then the rubble had just been strewn about. So they cleared the courtyards. They found the altar, and it had been knocked off its pedestal. So they put it back on its base in order to continue every day's sacrifices and worship. And they also laid a new stone foundation for the temple. And that's a pretty big work because it's a huge, huge temple. So obviously, they weren't being lazy. They did a lot of stuff early on. Upon arriving, their first order of business was to fix up the church, so to speak, before they worried about anything else. Well, before long, they began to face very strong opposition, especially from the Samaritans who lived in the surrounding area. These people felt slighted because they said, hey, let us help you. And the Jews who returned said, you have nothing to do with God. Stay away from us. We'll do this on our own. We are the people of God. And so they felt slighted. And they began doing a massive campaign of propaganda and letter writing, trying to get the king of the now Persian Empire, used to be Babylonians, now the Persian Empire, to put a cease and desist order, make them stop all the rebuilding. And it succeeded. So, it, uh, so uh, shortly after they returned, King Darius succumbed to the political pressure, and he said, you have to stop rebuilding this temple. You have to stop rebuilding the city. Cut it out. No more public works projects. If you want to build a house for yourself, I could care less. But stop working on the temple and on the city walls. And so that's what happened. The people in Jerusalem heard that. They got scared. This is the biggest guy in town. You don't go against the Persian Empire frivolously. And so they stopped all the work, and they began doing things on their own homes. And so they, they got the church, the temple, to a place where it was good enough for basic worship, and then they just stopped all the work. And what happened then was, was that um, after the, the work stopped, everybody started thinking about their own houses, and pretty soon, you know how it gets, there's that temple in ruins, and the walls are all a wreck, but it became background scenery. And for around 16 years, the people just completely forgot about the public works projects, and they kept building their own houses. 
And if you've got 16 years and, and, and money to do remodeling, there's a lot of junk you could do to your house in 16 years, isn't there? I mean, we just got done doing one bathroom. It cost me a couple thousand bucks. It was painful. But that one new bathroom in a house has generated so much excitement. Everyone can't wait to poop in the new bathroom. And, and they're waiting in line to shower in the new bathroom and all that. So it's really exciting to do that. Imagine 16 years where you've got nothing else to do. No one's collecting taxes. Nobody's doing anything. So I'm going to just keep upgrading my junk. I'm going to go to Ikea uh, every single day. That's, that's where, you know, simple folk go to buy their furniture. All I noticed, Plunkett Furniture went out of business recently, so maybe Ikea is winning the game. And that's what happened. And so then what happens is, after the, the work stalls for 16 years, uh, 16 years later, God looks at the situation and goes, I'm tired of this. This has got to stop. They have to resume work on the temple and rebuilding the city. And so on August 29th, 520 B.C., I mean, how's that for exact? On that exact date... God raises up a man named Haggai who stands before the people and preaches a sermon, actually a series of four sermons, which would revolutionize the spiritual life of the people who had returned. It would mark a turning point in their history and a period of great spiritual renewal. And so as Haggai gets up to deliver his first sermon, here's the word that he brings. And he says, this is what the Lord, and by the way, this is the, I'm, I'm going to try to give you a little themes uh, he addresses very head-on their lame excuses and their misplaced fear. That's an elephant afraid of some mice. And I know it's a myth. I actually researched this on the Internet. Elephants are not afraid of mice. But I don't, I, I don't know why that myth developed. It's, it's a silly, silly thing. Because an elephant could sit down and accidentally kill an entire village of mice and not even know. All right, anyway, so here's what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, this is God through Haggai repeating the the prevailing wisdom of the people. The people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So what the people were were repeating as kind of their motto is, well, we know we're supposed to do it, but the timing doesn't feel just quite right yet. After all, the, the emperor of the great Persian empire hasn't reversed his edict from 16 years ago. And we haven't seen anything change. The economy is holding steady. And, and so far, everything seems right. Jerusalem has settled into an equilibrium where everyone was really enjoying remodeling their homes. I imagine that on Sundays, after going to that wreck of a church, they went, all right, we gave our couple turtle doves and we've done our, our sacrifices. What's new at your house? Oh, we just installed a new garden on the roof. You want to come see? And that's what culture had become in Jerusalem. And so the people got into the habit, uncritically, of saying, we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't feel ready yet. We don't feel like all the doors have opened yet. Does that sound familiar to you? We are people in our culture today, perpetually in preparation, but scared to death of the day of decision. I've noticed this, especially with the younger people in their 20s, there is this kind of epidemic of failure to launch. You know what you're supposed to do. There aren't that many barriers in the way, but for some reason it's hard to pull the trigger and get moving. And so we postpone and we postpone for years and years and years. Five, six, seven, eight years. You know, just put it off. And we say the timing doesn't feel right. Now, let me be honest. Sometimes the timing really is not right. And it will be foolish to jump the gun. But sometimes that is our habitual excuse for postponing the work which God has given us the privilege to join him in. 
to their credit, okay, these are not slouchy people. A lot of the prophets raised up to speak to the southern kingdom were people who were raised up to yell at the people because they were so sinful, so stubborn, so rebellious. That is not the case with Haggai. Haggai is not representing a God who is losing his temper. That's not it at all. These are a special group of people. Even though 50,000 exiles returned from Babylon, you need to know that the vast majority of those taken captive decided to stay in captivity. They liked it there. They had, many of them had been born in captivity. It was the only home they knew. Listen, I've been in the United States 37 years. Nearly 40 years I've been here. I am thoroughly Americanized. I think of this country as my home. If we went to war against South Korea, I'd have a, a, an American flag on my shoulder. I'd have to shoot some Koreans. I wouldn't like it, but that's who I am. 37 years, I am a part of this country. This is my home. Thoroughly integrated into the culture and the way of things. I diligently pay my taxes because this is my country. It's good to say that on the 4th of July. Now, if I'm this devoted to this place... Granted, I wasn't brought here as a captive, but 37 years, I can't envision any other identity or any other home. When I think patriotism, it's this country that I think of. Imagine what 70 years in another place. New food, new language, new customs, new holidays. That'll get under your skin after a while. And the fact is, many of them had planted roots. They befriended their neighbors. They had successful, thriving businesses. Why would you leave all of that? Yes, it's not our home, but it's better than that ruin of a city that we return to. But out of all those people, 50,000 faith-filled followers of God packed up everything, uprooted their families, and went into the great unknown to rebuild a great metropolis that was just a heap of rubble. Do you realize what a courageous thing that was? So when God talks to these people, he's not talking to wayward, rebellious, sinful people. He's talking to the faithful remnant who obeyed him in faith and left Babylon to come and rebuild his holy city. And remember that when they first hit the, the city, they, they began work on the temple right away. They were the right people in the right place trying to do the right work, but they had lost their way. Other cares and concerns had distracted them, but these are not wicked people who hated God. And that's very important to understand as you pick up the tone of this message. And so God says to them, look, I know that in all fairness, you had this great big king with a huge army tell you to stop working. But I still have a problem with the fact that you all stopped. Big King Darius told you to stop, but I'm the one who told you to build. Who's scarier anyway, me or the stupid Persian king? Now, if you watch 300, I know that the Persian king looked like he was 11 feet tall and bald and kind of gender ambivalent. But, you know, (laughs) but you know what? As scary as any earthly king may be, God has a problem when we fear men more than we fear him. It says, do you really think that it was the edict of Cyrus that gave you the freedom to return? I'm the one who put that idea in Cyrus's head. I'm the one who told you to come back and rebuild the city. And if I told you to do it, how can a man tell you to stop? Why would you fear him more than you fear me? And that's the great problem God had. And that's why it's, it's not that often used. But when he addresses himself in this prophecy, he uses the term Lord of hosts. Or if you have the NIV, Lord Almighty. It's a, it's a very specialized term to suggest this is not, Lord, your best friend, my Jesus, I'm so secure in your arms. It's not that God. 
although that is a facet of God, it's, I am the master, the commander of all the armies of heaven. You do not mess with me. If you want to be scared of someone, be scared of me because I rule. I am the Lord Almighty, the Lord of the heavenly hosts, and this is he who addresses you today. Your fears in Darius are misplaced. It is God you must fear more than anyone. Fear his disapproval, but also fear how awesome his strength, how great his power, so that when you have faith in him, even if that means opposition against the greatest worldly power, you will succeed if you fear the Lord. How often have we postponed that which we know we're supposed to do? With the same old habitual excuse, the timing doesn't feel right, and I'm afraid that things haven't lined up well. What do you mean start a new work in this crazy economy? Why don't we wait until, until the president fixes everything and it's all good again? Why don't we wait? Why do we have to wait? If God released us, if he told us to do it, there is no good reason not to go. And that's why God is sending the prophet Haggai to say, you for 16 years hit the pause button for no good reason. Let's hit the play button again. Here's the next point in the sermon. Nice house, buddy. Now, I don't know if that's what the houses look like, but after 16 years of upgrades, I think you could probably pull off something like that, right? I mean, imagine if you never had to pay a tithe or pay any income tax. I'd have a house like that right now. Now, you've got to remember, though, God isn't losing his temper, but he's waking up his people. So he says this to them. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And listen to how he phrases it. Hey, guys, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, I know that nobody likes wood paneling anymore. That was big in the 70s. So paneled houses actually seems like a bad thing right now. But we're not sure exactly what that means. All we are clear about from ancient texts is that this term paneled houses indicated luxurious living. It indicated an upgrade to a home that went far beyond making it livable. Now listen, here's why that's so important. It's not as if God is saying to us, whenever you serve me, you have to pursue intentional poverty. Live like destitute people. I'm happiest when my people are homeless. That isn't the God we follow. He's very concerned about your welfare. He wants to make sure you're clothed and you're fed and that your creaturely needs and even many of your comforts are provided on a daily basis. I mean, I'm a sinful man and I want this for my own children. How do we ascribe to God any lesser motive than that? Unless you want to get on the stage and say, I'm a better father than God, you've got to learn to believe that God wants to take care of you. And so he's not saying to them, live out in the streets while you build my house. He's okay with them having houses. But here's where the problem comes. He goes, about, five, about maybe 15 years ago, your houses became very comfortable. For the last 15 years, it's all been value-added upgrades for resale value. You know what I'm talking about? It's going from a good counter to a great countertop. It's going from regular kitchen cabinets to custom cabinets. And it's all of that. And he said, you know, normally that wouldn't be such a problem. The point of the message is not to say all luxury, all upgrades are sinful before God. If you just got a new Apple iPhone 4G, don't, I mean, don't feel totally guilty. Feel a little guilty that your pastor still has a 3G. But the aim here is not to say if you have nice things, shame on you. 
Here's the point of the message. If you have lots of nice things and you could care less about God's work, shame on you. God doesn't have anything against the paneling on your house. But if in, in, in comparison, you say with your mouth you worship God, but your checkbook and your, your calendar and your energy and your schedule and all of that shows no proof that God has priority, then shame on us for trying to get credit for saying something when nothing in our physical lives would give any suggestion that God comes first in any place. Live in your wonderful house, drive your awesome car, talk on your brand new iPhone with two cameras and do whatever you want. But as you do it, you have to think very carefully. Does the rest of my life reveal that God has the glory? That he is worthy of first place in everything? That unquestionably, if to give God priority were a crime, I'd be in jail today. I have no defense. Look through my life. The evidence is everywhere. God always comes first. There's very little credit for words in this kingdom. Because words are easy. You can say stuff all day long. You know what's hard? Is to align your life behind those words. But that's where the substance of life in the kingdom is found. And so he says, is it right, guys, that your houses kick so much butt? My house is a joke. Look at it. Shame to tell people I live there. Look at it. Can you guys help me out a little? Can you actually put, put your, your feet to the ground and say that when we tell God we love him, it shows. Now, put a bookmark right there because I know this already sounds like a capital campaign sermon. I'm going to get to the punch. And I'm like, give us your money. I'm not going to do that. We don't want your money right now. This is about wrestling for your hearts. And so don't think that the other shoe is going to drop and I'm going to Pass the offering baskets around a second time. That isn't coming, okay? But listen, what God is saying is that your luxuries are not a big irritation to him unless it's, it's standing in his face while you completely neglect the things of God. And no one in this church wants to judge you. It's not our place or our right, but you need to think soberly about your own life. What happened there? Did I hit something? Could you advance the slide for me? So I'm still hungry. As the sermon progresses, what do they say about Chinese food? You eat it and 30 minutes later, you're starving again, right? It's like you didn't eat anything. That's a problem. And I know, I know exactly what they're talking about. I eat at Panda Express. I think I never want to see that stuff again. And on the way home, I pass another Panda Express. And I'm tempted to pull in and stop. So Chinese food is like that, but in a way, what, what Haggai is saying on God's behalf is life is like that for people who live for stuff. Listen to what he says. Whoa, what just happened? Hello. Okay. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Now, a lot of people have interpreted this as a time of physical scarcity, like there was famine in the land. I don't really see that there. There is some language of drought, but it's mainly given in the context of, look, it says you're eating. So it's not like they're starving. You eat, 
you drink, you put on clothes, you earn wages. This is not a depression era. There's plenty of stuff, but the, what he's saying is, isn't it, isn't it curious that for all the abundance of stuff that you put into yourself, you never really feel full? Why is it that the more you eat, the more you drink, you're still left kind of like after Chinese food. 30 minutes later, you're like, I want more. I don't know what it is. I know I just ate, but I still want more. Nothing I pour in seems to hit that part deep down inside. It's sort of like when you're all alone and there's an itch on that one part and you get to my age, there's, there's a limit to how far your arm can bend. And so I've actually had to resort to finding a brick wall and scratching like a bear against it because I can't reach that spot, right? And it's like that. You've got this place deep in your soul where you're hungry, you want to be fulfilled, but no matter what you pour in, nothing quite hits that. For a few minutes, you forget the emptiness because you bought new stuff and everyone likes shiny new stuff, right? I mean, who doesn't? Who, who, by the, who upgrades their phones anymore because they're broken or they don't work? You upgrade because you like shiny new things that go a little faster and do more stuff. I mean, we all love that and it's enough to distract you for a week or so, but pretty soon you go, my phone sucks. It just came out of the 4G.5 and I want it. And, you know, it, there's just no settling of the heart, is there? And that's why Haggai is saying, look, this, this phrase that's repeated twice here, give careful thought to your ways. If you translate it literally from the Hebrew, it says, set your heart or establish it in cement. What he's saying is, don't just give a quick answer and be okay with it. Make sure you truly understand where your heart is at. Don't let other people prejudge you. Don't just give a simple answer, a one-liner and move on. Look deep at your own heart and make sure you understand where you really stand on this issue. Think about it. Aren't you convinced that the more you think about it, if you live for stuff, it never feels like enough? I'm amazed when I visit people with nice homes and they're already talking about how they want to move. And I'm like, I don't get it. This is an awesome house. How could you ever want another house? And it's not because they want more. It's because they want new because when you live for stuff, you get used to everything you have. And the only thing that gets your heart beating again is the stuff you don't have yet. The new car smell, you know. They actually make sprays of new car smell in case you're too poor to buy a new car. You can pretend for a minute. Oh, man, my piece of junk, it's new to me. And, and that's, what, that's the culture we're living in. And, and God says, look, I don't want to rebuke you over this. I don't want to beat you up over what I'm saying to you twice is think about how you've arranged things. Think about if you're really happy as you think you are. Don't let someone else accuse you. You think about it. Are you truly fulfilled by the way you've chosen to live? By the motives that drive the engine of your life? Is it really as good as it seems from the outside? He goes on to say, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. God is furthering the case here that the reason you feel so little satisfaction is because, here's a, a spiritual principle, we are happiest in life when God's priorities are our priorities. I know that seems counterintuitive, because with other people, that wouldn't work. I can't say I'm happiest when your priorities are my priorities because I don't trust you, man. You're another sinful, selfish person. I don't want to have my life ordered by what you want me to do. I want freedom. 
But God is perfect and all loving. He knows tomorrow before today. And if you prioritize your life around the things that matter to him, the irony of it all is when you lose control over it to God, you find the happiness your heart's been longing for all along. What he's saying is the right priorities produce the deepest satisfaction. I mean, think of it this way. If you're, if you're all about good food, that's all you care about, and everywhere you go, you're like judging the food, then isn't it the case that you rarely have a good meal? When you're a food snob, it's always like the, the enjoyment of a meal is criticizing its imperfection. It's all right for steak, but you know, I've had better. <laughs> and you know, like those, that, that's why food critics rarely enjoy a meal, because it's their job to find the flaws. But that's not the case when we go out. You, you'll accept even the most mediocre food if it's shared over laughter with good friends. Isn't that funny? When it's not just about good food, but you understand the value food is to bring people together, somehow you can be... That's how Denny stays in business. Right? That's how they stay open 24 hours. No one goes there for the food. You go there because you want to be with your friends and it's the only place open. Yet we'll eat there... Because food is secondary, the priority is friendship, and therefore, it really doesn't matter what we're eating. Don't you hate when, when you go, hey, are you doing anything Friday night? It all depends. What are you doing? Does it really matter? I'm asking you. Shouldn't that be enough? You can do whatever it is I want, and if we're together, shouldn't that? And so that's the person you never really build a friendship with. You're like, eh, get out of here. I, I, don't, I don't need more of you in my life. But when your priorities are in the right place... It's amazing how the enjoyment of life increases because you're not out there to be a critic of things, a connoisseur of things, a mindless, relentless pursuer of quality. You really want just to be alive. And everything starts tasting better when you stop being a collector or a critic and you start living. And that's what God is after here. He says the reason you're not fulfilled is because your priorities are so upside down. There's a family at our church that has um, extended hospitality to my family on many, many occasions. And yesterday we were at their home, and, uh, you know, a chocolate cake was served. And I saw the big chunk of chocolate had fallen off and was on their white tablecloth. This is a fancy tablecloth, okay? Really fancy. I like it. And, and so I saw the chocolate, and partly because I wanted to eat the chocolate, and partly because I was concerned for the nice things, I grabbed the chocolate and said, ooh, I think it's stained. And without skipping a beat, the lady of the house says to me, whatever, I'm not taking that thing with me to heaven. Why would I care about a tablecloth? So forget about it. Just eat the chocolate and don't worry. And I thought, man, that just so, I don't know if she realized it, but that really blessed me. It blessed me because I realized they own nice things, but nice things don't own them. And because of that difference, they've been set free to enjoy life and not be fretting over their stuff. And I see that and I think, what a freedom is experienced there. Where no one's pointing a finger of accusation, you have nice stuff. Because we all get to enjoy it. They opened that home to us. And if you ruin their stuff, I mean, I went to one of the relatives' houses and I broke a chair. And they, did, they were okay with that. I was amazed. I'm a destructive house guest, by the way. <laughs> you don't want to be around me. But that kind of attitude just so touches my heart because it shows me this is the kind of people we want to be. We may own our things, but they don't own us. And in that, we find the freedom to enjoy the fullness of life as God intended.
What God says next is, listen, you really want to change your priorities. You've been convicted by this. Here's what you got to do. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He says, look, maybe Haggai's message is getting through to you. Well, don't just say amen, shed a few tears and go home talking about how good that sermon was. Wasn't that good? Mm, I got so blessed. Mm, mm, mm. Let's go eat somewhere and forget about the sermon, right? That's what happens every Sunday. And God says, no, no, you can't just change your mind about this. If you want to see your priorities shift, you can't just mentally shift. Do something to realign your life. Because if you don't do something, all it is is a flash in the pan. And you'll think in your mind, you get the credit for changing when you haven't changed anything. But you're thinking. And so look at the verbs in this. Go up. And then bring down. Now that sounds so easy. Have you ever climbed a mountain? That's a pain. It's hard. You get to the top, you're like, (sighs) and then you chop down a tree. Have you ever picked up a tree? A big log? You drag that junk all the way down the hill. And you're like, after all that work, you want to make your own patio or deck out of that tree. But then God goes, no, bring it to the church. Drop it off there. Build my house with all that hard labor. I know that every dollar you earn is hard fought. I know that no one's out there just handing you cash for nothing. Every one of us is working hard for our money. Like Donna Summer. We're just working hard for our money. Working hard for it, honey. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Knowing how hard we're working, God says, and yet, when you take that sacrifice and you put it in my kingdom, it's a a significant act because it signals a genuine shifting of the priorities in your life. See, priorities cannot just be a theory. They're reflected in the fabric of our real lives. Concrete action is required. And so the challenge to us this morning is, I'm not going to tell you what that needs to be, but if God's convicting you, then something significant ought to be done in follow-up very quickly. Where you say, I'm going to do this for no other reason than to show God in a substantial way, you really do come first. And this is something I held dearly. I release it to you because I need to do something to prove even to myself that when I say God first, it means something. And here's where I want to reemphasize. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not about money and God doesn't like buildings. Look what he says in Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth, the whole planet is my footstool, my ottoman. So how are you going to build a house for me, really? What kind of a house could you build that everyone goes, oh yeah, that's adequate, worthy of God. I'm sorry, you can't do it. When the whole planet is his resting place for his feet. Do God's feet smell? I don't know. But if that's what the planet is, How are you going to build a palace and say, why don't you live there? Ta-da! Isn't it great? He's not interested in our money or in our houses. But what he's really interested in is this. Remember this? So that when I see what you're doing and the priorities are aligned right, I will take pleasure in your life and I will be honored by your life. That's what he's after. This is not a sermon about money. It's about giving God priority because through that realignment of our lives, God takes pleasure pleasure in us. You know how blessed I get? I, I once made the mistake of telling my children I like Tootsie Rolls. I liked Tootsie Rolls better than every other nasty candy they had in that bucket. So I said, I like Tootsie Rolls. And I kind of like them, but I'm not, I'm not like a Tootsie Roll fanatic. 
But ever since that fateful day, like seven years ago, anytime my children touch a Tootsie Roll, they save it for daddy. I actually just stick it in my, my mouth like chewing tobacco and just, you know, because what am I going to do with it? But I have so much Tootsie Roll in my life. You know why I eat every last piece I can? Because my children honor me with that. It's amazing to me that they would take a piece of candy and their first impulsive thought is daddy likes this. I'm going to save it for daddy. That gets to me. I actually hate Tootsie Rolls now. (laughs) That candy is not adequate for me. But the heart of my children is enough to make me swallow every last piece. I think that's the lesson here, isn't it? And God is saying, you've got to understand how much pleasure God takes when he watches us boldly rearrange our lives as a gift to him. Let me wrap this up. Look at the response of the people. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Wouldn't it be awesome if every sermon had that result? If we could hear that this is not a good talk peppered with a few good jokes, but this is God's word delivered by a person that God sent for your sake and that you would receive it that way week after week and think, huh, God must really care about me because he has not left me in the dark. He has spoken plainly to me about what is on his heart and I will respond to him in obedience. Now, before we wrap up here, you need to know September 21st, 520 B.C. was a turning point. Roughly 23 days after Haggai began preaching his sermon series, the people repented and they began to rebuild God's temple in earnest. But before we think that Haggai was just a really good communicator, I really dislike that phrase. When we find good preachers these days, that's the big compliment. You're an awesome communicator. Well, thank you. That means I don't stumble and go um, um, um every five seconds. But it's not the power of our communication skills that gets people to change. The sermons from this or any other pulpit are not exercises in persuasion. I think I've done a masterful job in the past of persuading some of you about certain things, but that didn't get your whole life to change, did it? You could walk out going, dang, was he ever right? I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing anyway, but man, that guy can argue. I ain't fighting with him. He can make a point. You see, it wasn't Haggai's persuasiveness that brought about the repentance and the obedience. But look what it says. The Lord stirred up the spirit of these people. God did it. He did something mystical in the hearing of that sermon where it's like literally the, 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 the visual is agitating water. If you've ever done that, just turning something, that's the idea. He did that to their hearts. They heard the message, they were convinced in their minds, but as they were leaving, their hearts wouldn't stop pounding. Something was messed up inside, and they said, i got to do something about this. I can't suppress this one. It's not leaving me alone. And that's a work that only God can do. I will never take credit for the transformation in your life. I'm tempted to because I'm a prideful, fleshly jerk, but you know what? I'm not going to go around going, see Harvest, those good people over there? I'm the pastor. I did it. 
That's just dumb. That's like a CD player pretending that he made Yo-Yo Ma's music, right? I mean, that's just dumb. Just a conduit. The real power is with God. And so as you're hearing this, if somehow you sense in your spirit an agitation where God is saying, I want more from you. You're holding a lot back from me, and because of it, you're not experiencing the fullness of life. You feel a little lost, options everywhere, you don't know where to go, and nothing satisfies. I want all of you now, and if you'll give it to me, I will turn your life inside out. And if you're responding in your heart to that, then we need to pray right now. Later on to the prophet Zechariah, he would say on God's behalf to Zerubbabel, these famous words, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He's reminding Zerubbabel, as you go back to repair this city, you're not going to do it because you were inspired. You're going to do it because the Spirit of God is upon you, and He will not let you rest until the work is finished. And He will give you the power you need to go the distance. Isn't that awesome? That's what we need to pray to God for today. Harvest is in our 15th year. God has done much, but there is still so much more He wants to do through this great family of Christians. If we're going to enjoy that journey with him, this is a prayer we all have to pray today. There is no harvest as some organization. There's just us. And if God has all of each one of us, we're going to turn this planet upside down for the glory of God. Are you with me? Let's pray together. This is your time now. And what you're, before you go and say a long string of words to God about all the things you're going to do, want to do, all that, ask the Lord to stir and agitate your spirit a little bit. I'll oh, forget that. Ask him to stir and agitate your heart a lot. Ask him to so stir up the waters in your spirit that you can't rest until you've given God the first place in everything. Let's pray for, let's swing for the fences and ask the Lord to come and do that work. It's a little scary because it's going to cost you something if you mean this prayer. But imagine the life that will be unleashed for you as you do this. So as the praise team is just playing a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of go sit down as I need to pray too. And let's as a church family go before God and now invite him. Come and do your work. We've heard. Now stir us up. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.